Please have your Bibles open again at Acts chapter 10, the chapter we read together. Uh, We're coming to another very significant uh, stage in the expansion of the gospel. Uh, It's the first time that the gospel is preached uh, to a congregation which was largely Gentile, largely non-Jewish. And it would be hard for you and for me to to really appreciate it, to think ourselves into how big a step that was. Hard, unless we were Jews ourselves, to to see the significance of the the kingdom uh, now embracing all the nations. Uh, Even although the Old Testament clearly prophesied that, even although there were inklings all the way along, that this is God's uh, purpose, Yet there was within Jewry a real resistance to it happening. Uh, People tended to be dismissive or at least condescending to the Gentiles around them. So this is a great step forward. And it is so significant that it has to be confirmed or attested before the watching church. Remember when uh, we... We're looking at the chapter 9. We saw that God, uh, in his grace, granted uh, great miracles, including the raising of Tabitha from the dead, in order that Peter, who is now going to be associated with this, this bold and courageous step in preaching to Gentiles and receiving them as Christians, baptizing them as uh, bona fide Christians, uh, he has already been attested by God, uh, through these great miracles. And there will be other phenomena, including the sending of an angel uh, to Cornelius to tell him to summon a preacher, and the giving of a vision to Peter, and then the giving of the manifestation of tongue speaking to those who receive the message, to affirm that God is behind this extension of his kingdom to the Gentiles. So, uh, as we're going to see, there are aspects of the chapter which are unique and which are unrepeatable because they pertain to the first century moving out of the church to the Gentiles. But this morning I want to, to concentrate with you on the aspects of the chapter which are repeatable, which apply to us as we seek to bring the gospel out into a world which is divided, which is torn apart uh, by barriers of various kinds. And so I want to look with you this morning at, first of all, the people, the people themselves who called Peter, uh, the preacher himself, Peter, the one who obeyed the summons, the proclamation that he made, And then the power that was unleashed, four Ps. The people uh, who gathered, the preacher who went, the proclamation that was made and the power that was unleashed. Who were these people who gathered as this first largely Gentile congregation? Well, clearly uh, there was Cornelius himself, the instigator. He was an unusual man because he is a military man. He's a soldier in the Roman army. Uh, He is uh, an officer in the Roman army. He is over 100 men. And typically, men like 
Cornelius were pretty hard-bitten, rugged individualists and very often cruel men. But this man is different. He is a godly man. He is devout. Uh, He knows that there is a God and he is seeking him. The term God-fearing in the New Testament is used of people who have been attracted to the Jewish way. Uh, Very often people who were from different backgrounds saw in Judaism a purity of worship that was lacking in all the the, the pantheon of gods that the others worshipped. And they were drawn uh, to the worship of the, the one true God. He's a praying man. He spends much of his time in prayer. He's praying regularly to God. He's a generous man. He gives generously to those who are in need. So the picture that we have of Cornelius is that he's an admirable man. Uh, He's a man who's respected by those around him. He's called a devout man. People look up to him. They see that there's something uh, out of the ordinary about this man. But the thing which the Holy Spirit is underlining for us about Cornelius is that although he may be religious, uh, devout, though he may be sincere, though he may be generous, though he may uh, be committed to uh, a religious discipline of prayer and fasting and giving, although all these things are good and admirable, And reflect the fact that he is seeking God. The fact remains, he is not saved. He is not saved. He needs to be born again. He needs someone who will come and tell him clearly about Jesus and the way of salvation. You see, all the things that are said about Cornelius, although they are all good, They will not earn Cornelius eternal life. And they will not earn anyone else eternal life. They indicate a heart that's hungry. A heart that is open, ready. But someone who has not yet received Jesus Christ. And God's answer to that need is not to send an angel. Not to... uh, Give signs and wonders, Father, but to send a preacher. What Cornelius needs is to hear the good news and to respond to that. Now, there are people like Cornelius uh, in all generations and all situations. And maybe you this morning are like Cornelius. I don't know. Maybe uh, it's a case that you are upright but not saved. Religious insofar as you're in church. But not born again of the Spirit of God. Not having consciously repented of your sin. Not consciously having placed your trust in Jesus. And that salvation comes through hearing the gospel. Hearing the gospel. So if you're not yet a believer, the Bible is what you need to listen carefully to. Because it is through the scriptures we learn how to be saved. Now Cornelius had a clear sense of God's leading him to this preacher. God had told him who to go to. It was a preacher who was called Peter, who was staying with Simon the Tanner, a man who lived by the seaside in Joppa. A pretty straightforward direction. Uh, in fact, 
Uh, someone has said that if you wanted to find out where Simon's home was, all you had to do was follow your nose, because to be a tanner meant that uh, around your house you'd have a pile of, of uh, hides in various uh, degrees of completion, and it would be a smelly occupation, uh, tanning hides. Uh, Cornelius was directed clearly to God's man for him. And if we're eager to know the Lord, then we may not be given visions, we may not be given special directions, but God will ensure that we are brought across the path of someone who will share the gospel with us. Those of us who are Christians know that to be the case. The God who appoints us to salvation appoints people who will share the message with us. Paul says in Romans 10, 14 and 15, How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? So Cornelius is a wonderful example to us of someone, uh, someone whose heart was open and ready, someone who wasn't saved yet, but God was at work in his life to the extent that he was eager to hear the gospel. That's a great example to anyone who knows they're not truly saved. Our receptivity to hearing the gospel. And there's another thing that Cornelius did which is a good example uh, to, to all of us. Uh, something that all of us, uh, Christian and non-Christian, do well to copy. As we read between the lines, it seems that the, the distance from uh, Cornelius' house in Caesarea uh, to Joppa, where Peter was, was a, a journey of about a day and a half. So Cornelius had to send messengers uh, to Joppa, and then they came back to his house. So three days elapsed before Peter met up with Cornelius. And Cornelius uh, did not just sit around twiddling his thumbs over these three days. He got busy. He got busy gathering a congregation. Verse 24, the following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting him and had called together his relatives and close friends. And so the result is in verse 27 that Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. Isn't that great? These people hadn't heard uh, Peter. They didn't know whether he was an eloquent preacher or not. Uh, they knew nothing about him. Uh, this was not the, the call of the celebrity. Uh, this was simply Cornelius doing his bit to ensure that the people he loved, the people he was connected with, the people that he had a concern for, would have the same opportunity that he longed for, to hear more about God's way of salvation. He saw the importance of bringing other people under the sound of the gospel. That's something that we can all uh, copy, can't we? We all have friends and family who are not with us in church this morning. We can bring them in different ways under the sound of the gospel. <coughs> we may not be able to preach the gospel ourselves. We may feel that we're not the best one-to-one -one evangelist, but we can always give the, the, the simple invitation to someone to come along where the gospel will be proclaimed. And that is a wonderful form of evangelism. 
We simply do the, the simple act of obedience and because God is king, he does the work. He does the work. That's a great thing about being a Calvinist. You don't need to worry about people being converted because you're not the one doing it. It's God who does it. We simply obey. Show up. God does the work. Look finally at the attitude of the, the congregation as expressed through Cornelius, because I think it's a, another good example for us. Peter comes and he asks a good question. He says to them, may I ask why you've sent for me? Good question. Good question. It's a question that uh, we, we could ask ourselves, couldn't we? You know, why, why, why have I turned up? Why am I in church? What's the point? What am I here for? What am I looking for? Peter wanted to know if there was a seriousness about the congregation that had gathered. What, what am I seeking in being here? Your friends, if, if you are seeking, it's a great thing. Because Jesus said that if we seek, we will find. So to be in God's presence, in God's house, under the preaching of God's word, and be seeking, that's a great situation to be in. And then listen to, to uh, what Cornelius says about the attitude of the people. He says, now we are all here in the presence of God. Where is this? Verse, uh, verse 30, I think, in, in uh, the chapter. No, verse 33. We are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. This man is not even a Christian yet. And yet he acknowledges that they are there in God's presence. It is the Lord, not Peter, who is the great personality confronting them. And they are in no position to tell uh, this great God what he should say. They are simply there to receive whatever it is God would say to them. They realize that Peter is under the direction of God. His message is not simply something he's concocted from his own imagination. It's not something that he necessarily wants to share. He's a man under authority. This military man, Cornelius, uh, has a clear understanding of the situation in which Peter finds himself that day. He is under strict orders. That's the case with every preacher, every sincere preacher of the gospel. He realizes that it's up to him to simply give the people what God has given him. And to be obedient to the Bible. That can be hard. The, the story is told of uh, the English reformer uh, Hugh Latimer, that he was, uh, he was uh, often uh, called upon to preach before Henry VIII, uh, who was uh, a pretty irascible character, and he began on one occasion exclaiming, Latimer, Latimer, thou art going to speak before the high and mighty king, Henry VIII, who is able, if he think fit, to take thy life away. Be careful what thou sayest. But Latimer, Latimer, remember thou art also about to speak before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Take heed lest thou displease him. That's the 
line of authority, isn't it? We are under the king of kings. We are not under, we're, we're, we're not given any latitude in what we proclaim. We must proclaim the word of God. Cornelius understood this. He assures Peter, we are here to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. A great model, isn't it, for our Coatbridge congregation that Sunday by Sunday we gather to hear whatever it is the Lord wants us to hear. Let's turn from the, the people, especially Cornelius, now to Peter, the preacher, and some of his characteristics. Peter has been about to embark on one of the great steps forward of the church. Uh, he's going to proclaim the gospel and receive into the church people who have been non-Jews. But before Peter can be used in this way, God has to bring him on, as it were. God has to help Peter overcome his prejudices because Peter is a prejudiced man. Uh, there is much in Peter that disinclines him to sharing the gospel with Gentiles like Cornelius. Now, Peter, being an Old Testament man, knew that the, the, the end game, as it were, was that the gospel would go to non-Jews. That from the beginning, God had a plan uh, to bless all the world. God's word to Abraham was that in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And in the Old Testament, Peter would know that there are examples of non-Jews being brought into the kingdom. Uh, women like Rahab, uh, uh, women like Ruth, uh, Naaman, and so on. But more than that, he knew that his Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, had uh, reached out to Samaritans, had made a Samaritan the unlikely hero of one of his most famous parables. He knew especially that the Great Commission laid upon him the uh, order of bringing the gospel to all the nations of the earth. And that before Jesus had left, Jesus had said that they were to be his witnesses, first of all in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So Peter knew what had to be done. But there was within him a resistance which God had to deal with. Now, we can immediately apply it to ourselves because we are, we are in a situation uh, where, in the west of Scotland, where things religion-wise are probably as polarized as any place on earth. And it's easy for Christians to think they can share the gospel only with those who happen to come from their side of the fence. Easy to be influenced by attitudes that have gone down through the generations, so we think, well, it's just not worth the effort sharing the gospel with them. And of course, that would be an unpardonable attitude, because it would betray grace. It would betray grace, because the reality is that whatever we are on the outside, we're all sinners. All sinners, no matter what our religious background is, no matter whether a person is a church-going Protestant or a Protestant by virtue of the football team he supports, no matter whether a person is a practicing Catholic or simply a cultural Catholic, 
What does the Bible say? It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, we are all on level ground. And the God who says to Peter that he shows no partiality is the God that compels us to share the gospel with all brands of sinner. And therefore, when we apply the Acts 10 message to Peter to our own situation, we realize that it is our duty to love all people for Jesus' sake. And to ask God to help us to overcome the things in our own hearts that may make it more difficult to share the gospel with those who have come from a different background. And if God increasingly grants us to become a, a, a congregation of his people who are drawn from all kinds of different uh, religious backgrounds. What a testimony to the saving grace and the uniting grace of the gospel that would be. All one in Christ Jesus. So Peter was the preacher that God had dealings with before he could be used. And having dealt with Peter, Peter goes and makes the proclamation proclamation uh, that has not changed from uh, the time when Peter proclaimed it in Caesarea to our own day. And there are certain essential elements. First of all, it's a message to all the people, all the people. Uh, God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation. The gospel must be shared indiscriminately and must penetrate the darkest corner. God's people are not given the option of retreating into a little enclave. We are not called uh, to be aquarium uh, keepers, but we are called to be fishers of men. Secondly, it's a proclamation. Verse 36, you know the message, the proclamation. It's the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Good news, evangel, has to do with a proclamation. Has to do with what uh, the heralds in the first century did, uh, who were sent by, for example, a new emperor to proclaim that there was a new emperor on the throne and he demanded the allegiance of everyone in his territory. And when the message went out, it didn't say, Augustus has come to the throne and would invite you to try him to see if you would like him to be your new emperor. It went out and it said, Augustus is Lord. Augustus is Lord and demands your allegiance. And the gospel goes out and declares Jesus is Lord. Jesus, once crucified, now ascended, commands you to repent and believe. Jesus is Lord. Because he took the place of sinners on the cross, all who trust him find God's peace. More than that may come into his family. It's a summons to come under God's terms of peace. Uh, the content is about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. He came as fully human and yet at the same time fully divine, filled with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good. I love that expression for the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it good? He went about doing good. That's how people saw him. He was rolling back continually the powers of darkness. They put Jesus to death on a tree. The curse of death. He was hung on a tree 
in the, the law in Deuteronomy, that meant someone was under the ban of God. He was accursed that we might be blessed. He rose on the third day. Jesus' resurrection means he'll come as a judge. And therefore, there is always, when the gospel is proclaimed, there is always a call to make a decision, to decide whether Jesus will be your savior or whether you will reject him. Never leaves us uh, on the fence. It's interesting too that the New Testament message, in other words, the words that Jesus told the disciples to proclaim, is one of judgment, that he will come to judge. And the Old Testament message is that there is forgiveness to be found in him. All the prophets declare that Jesus was the one who will give forgiveness. And that, that is interesting, isn't it? Because the caricature that people make of the Bible is the Old Testament full of judgment, full of wrath. New Testament full of love and forgiveness. Peter characterizes the Old Testament as a message of forgiveness and Jesus as warning us of judgment to come. In other words, friends, we need the whole Bible. We cannot... Uh, be people who rely simply on one half or other of the Bible. And then finally and briefly, while the, the power that was unleashed, while Peter's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on those who are hearing and they speak in tongues and there is an unmistakable uh, drawing into the church. Now again, this, this, as I've said at the beginning, this is one of the unique features of this particular event. This is a mini Pentecost. This is a step forward into new territory and as a result of that, God attests it in a unique, recognizable way. God is affirming that these people truly are believers. But what's important for our own day is that when God's word is proclaimed. God is at work. The Holy Spirit is at work. And we can expect to see his power unleashed. We ought to anticipate his power being unleashed. And people are changed. Lives are transformed by word and spirit. People who call the preacher, the preacher who came, the proclamation he made and the power that accompanied the proclamation. Let's be a people with confidence in the word of God. Constrained, compelled by the love of God to bring this great evangel, this gospel to all without discrimination. All in our community. And may God bless proclaiming of his name. Amen. Let's sing a psalm now as we close, which does speak about the gathering in of all uh, kinds of peoples and nations. Psalm number 87 from